AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is AlienLegacy.html. Hey, I got it right on the first time that tried. Yay! So last episode, we talked a little bit about the BTS that went into making Alien the legendary film it is. Well, to be fair, we talked a lot, but there is a lot to talk about. And evidently, most of it is about Dune? Uh, yeah, I I, I can't even. And a guy who had nothing to do with Alien. A Jawa. A Jawa was going to direct Dune. It's especially wild to me, considering that the person who ultimately did adapt Dune into a film is someone else you are so obsessed with David Lynch. Like, it was supposed to be done by someone whose film you were obsessed with from 1979, and then it was ultimately done by someone whose show you were obsessed with in the early 90s. Like, had you even considered that until I said it out loud on our show just now? No, I I can't stop laughing. Yeah, it's weird. We'll probably say something about Twin Peaks eventually, but for now, let's focus on a different screaming woman, Ellen Ripley. She is one of those characters that just like, for me, I put her in that pantheon of incredible female protagonists who came out of nowhere and redefined what you expected. I put her in a list of emerging strong women like Jean Grey as the Phoenix, Electra Nachos, or Electric Nachos, whatever makes you happy, and Frank Miller's Daredevil, just to name a few. And of course, I named two Marvel Comics characters. I'm sure- Leia! Leia's a badass motherfucker. Mmm, and from around the same time, too. Absolutely. One of the things that's so important when we're discussing the transmission from LV426 as a film is we need to think about how Alien establishes atmosphere. And to that end, I want to open up with we're going to be discussing the director's cut by Ridley Scott. Now, say what you will about Covenant. I will say a lot of bad things about Covenant. But at the time, and even with a lot of Prometheus, Ridley Scott knows how to get an, like, uh, an atmosphere. He knows how to set a mood like nobody's business. And I still feel it was a huge risk to give him this project when, as I mentioned on the last episode, his only real feature film before this one was about foppy French dudes dueling in the, in the Napoleonic era. For this to be his next major outing, it's so drastically different from that. And he accomplished setting the tone and making this have the horror feel that was something you didn't really see much in sci-fi at the time. There was horror, but it was like camp horror. This was like exceptionally psychological and deeply atmospheric. Absolutely. This could have easily become Ridley's Follies, but instead we got a movie that didn't just tell us about an alien, a team of seven floating through space, a ship diverted by a political cause. No. It told us a story about the survival of the human spirit. Alien is so much more than its pieces, and I think that has to do with the emotional atmosphere created right from the beginning of the film. From the moment that the logo begins to appear on the screen, each one of those lines slowly assembling to create the name Alien. It's bizarre because we recognize those letters, we recognize those lines, but there actually is something alien to the presentation of it all. It kind of captures the antithesis of the fanciful magic of the Star Wars crawl. The Star Wars crawl is engaging and beautiful and light and exciting and and long and big and clear and detailed. 
And that music, oh my god, when John Williams' score starts, that blare, you immediately feel transported to fucking Narnia Fillory, and instead, here, the music is, like, the music could curdle milk. It's almost dead silent, basically, until we find the crew. There's music, but they really employed that concept of silence in space to create a sense of dread as we are slowly led into meeting the characters. Now, I want to talk about how there really are nine characters in this film. It would appear that there are seven. We have the seven officers who are Dallas, Kane, Ripley, Lambert, Ash, Brett, and Parker. But I do want to point out that there's two other characters. There's, of course, my precious alien. And there's Mother. And there's the city. The city's the fifth girl. I was waiting. I was waiting for an opportunity to throw that joke in. Thank you. Thank you for saying it. But on a more serious note, do you feel that Mother and the Nostromo as a character are the same thing? thing. Like, I know you're joking, saying the city is the fifth girl, but is Mother the same character, would you say, as Nostromo the ship itself? I need to be clear right now, all I can think about is a xenomorph Carrie typing at her typewriter. I had to ask myself, is love dead in space? If I can't inject my baby into your stomach, where can I even inject my baby? But beyond that, I do feel like Mother and the ship are two different things. The ship acts as, for me, not a character, but a body. The ship represents home and humanity. The ship is their last vestige of a protection, a haven, that they'd ever be able to go back to. As a matter of fact, I remember the first time I saw this movie, my mind was shocked that they blew up the fucking ship. I was like, no, no, she's gonna get away in the ship. Obviously, she's gonna get away. What do they- Why Why can't she stop the ship from exploding? Why is the ship still exploding? Someone save the boat! Because it doesn't feel like the ship is ever working against them, which is something that I think a lot of science fiction, especially horror, would possibly do. Even though the computer system is working against them, I feel like Mother Moore represents Waylon Yutani as a company, and her being their voice working against the crew. The ship itself, while semi-alive almost, it really is more of a backdrop, a place, then that's why I even ask if you felt that they were the same character, because I feel like Nostromo is more like a the city type character, whereas Mother is almost a being herself. Absolutely. I think Mother communicates with us as an audience by agitating our anxiety. So many of the noises that Mother makes are so severe, whether it's that clicking and the whirring and the beeping, or it's the doors sounding aggressive and hateful. And it's interesting that Mother is sort of then the first character that we are technically introduced to. If you don't count, like, the pans of the ship, which, you know, I even already said it's more like a living set than it is a character. But then the first character that we see addressed in the opening message is, what's the story, Mother? Well, then I have a question for you. How would you compare something like the non-sentient Nostromo to something like the living habitat of Moya from Farscape versus the very technological and dry Millennium Falcon. They treat the Millennium Falcon like it's something they love, but the Millennium Falcon is more like a classic car they want to protect, and Moya is a life they want to cherish. Well, Moya is like a living being. I've always felt that Leviathans as techno-organic ships. Did we say this is from Farscape? From Farscape, in case you didn't realize. If you didn't, we can't be friends, and that's okay. But I feel like Leviathans being techno-organic ships, they almost speak sometimes. They speak through their pilot. I agree. I feel like the Millennium 
Millennium Falcon is more like a classic car, and I think that has to do with George Lucas being the creator and him having done American Graffiti. And even though, like, there's moments where R2-D2 says that he talked to the ship's computer, like, I never really felt like the Millennium Falcon was a living being. I still don't want to see it destroyed. I'd be heartbroken if I did. Yeah, it's a really, it's, it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition when you compare it to those two. Which one would I say that the Nostromo is more like? I would say it's more alive than the Falcon, but it's less alive than Moya. I think mostly because of the size, though. It's so huge. And I get that, because, like, I feel like Deep Space Nine is a place people live, but the Enterprise is a way of life. Mmm. So it's so important that we've set up the idea that your ship is like your way of life because when the ship receives a distress signal for which Mother wakes the crew up to investigate, one of the things that I've come to think about is that they discover an alien ship and they immediately enter it. There is something about the idea that ship is home. Planets aren't home. Planetoids aren't home. Ships are home. It's a very nomadic way of thinking and it kind of captures, I mean, there are freight operation. So it really is long distance trucking and they're stopping at rest stops and they see there's another truck down. The rest stop isn't the identity. The truck is the identity. And it's so fitting that while the rest of the Alien franchise would focus more primarily on the xenomorphs themselves, Ridley Scott's vision for the Alien franchise is more linked to the idea of the egg and the engineers and, or at this point I guess they're just the space jockeys, and the giant ship. All of this is is so incredible, and I think it's made more severe and more off-putting by the fact that the team is broken up into so many smaller groups. Once everybody's woken up from stasis and we get some lovely images of some people in some very poorly fit briefs, we find out that they're going to send Dallas, Kane, and Lambert to the planet to investigate while Parker and Brett work on repairing the ship. This leaves Ripley to take care of some on-board stuff, I guess, while Ash does his own thing. I think she's just acting ranking officer while Dallas and anyone above her is off the ship. So while Ripley realizes something is deeply off, she's unable to communicate it to the crew, who at this point have found a large chamber filled with hundreds of eggs. I love everything about the ship and the planet experience. There's that mist barrier. There are so many fantastical elements that say to us, this is a mix of metal and nature. I only want to correct to say they all find the space jockey, and it is certainly implied that they all go down to the egg chamber. The only character that we see go down there is Kane, and I only want to make the distinct point of that not being the same, because even as I was watching it, the delicate process that it takes for Kane to repel down into the egg chamber, because I only noticed this, this time the way that they discover the egg chamber, and I thought it was so cool. First, they find the space jockey and have no idea what this giant alien is, which is already horrifying enough to see it with the chest burst wound, but then they follow a trail down to where there's like just a small hole in the floor below him that was clearly acid burned by an alien, and Kane is the one to rappel down. And as I was saying, it's such a delicate process that the fact that they have to rescue him from the egg chamber, I found myself being like, how did they all get down there, hoist him up out of the chamber? It's not exactly something that is hugely 
hugely problematic for me because I give so much of this film a pass being from 1979. We knew so much less about space than we did now. We knew so much less about graphics and effects than we do now. So there are so many things that I am so understanding about because of the era. But that definitely struck me that like he kind of had to crawl through a small hole and repel down by like just a wire. And there's something even really important to that. The most important thing to remember about Alien is that it is a reconciliation of the violence that men commit against women in sci-fi repurposed as yonic aggressed male rape. And this man enters this cavern by repelling in and is thusly starting the cycle. He goes where he's not supposed to go. He enters this darkness. And it's so interesting that so many of the symbols in this area are water and liquid based. As a matter of fact, Ridley Scott's interpretation of Alien is so very liquid and very fluid. Mm. Whether it's the mist, the acid, ashes, bile, the milk, the milk. On. Yeah, there is the chest bursting has so much fluid to it. The very viscous kind of mucous membrane around the inside of the egg. There's so much moisture, yonic, tide, moon, water, ocean, alien symbolism. And I gotta say that egg prop, I was really paying attention this time around and like it has to be made out of actual meat. That thing looks so organic. You said something that I wanted to ask you a question before I go further on. You talked about him, you know, stumbling upon and disturbing this chamber, but there's something that I've always sort of been a little bit confused on when it comes to the Alien franchise. How on purpose was sending this crew there? Was it really that they just stumbled upon this distress signal and that that activated Wayland yutani wanting a sample, or did Wayland yutani know, send them nearby on purpose, hoping they would have an opportunity to obtain a sample they already knew was there. Is there information about that going further in the franchise? I'd need to check into the apocryphal comics because that definitely is a question I've always had and further had. Well, okay, so here we just think Whalen yutani is the towing company, but Mother's up to something. It becomes very clear that Whalen yutani is like Google Verizon Exxon and they are an evil super corporation out to destroy everybody, so says Paul Buckman. And I feel like if they didn't do this on purpose, someone somewhere planted it so it could One of the things about Alien is it's all about the fluke of evolution. From day one, it's about flukes of evolution. Because that was even something that I put down in my notes, the fascinating confluence of events that led to all of this, that they happened to come close enough to LV-426 to get the distress signal. They happened to find the engineer's station on the ship and happened to find the hole and happened to spelunk down into it. And Kane happened to fall down and break the mist and he like stood there for a while as the egg was opening and watched it and opened himself up to the attack of being attacked by the face hugger and then parker is like demanding why aren't you freezing him and they don't which further leads to more chaos there's such a confluence of all these things had to happen in sequence for any of this to happen i agree if they had done what parker suggests which frankly ripley backs up as at one point acting officer on the ship If they had put him into cryostasis, the chest burster might not have burst till Earth, which could have killed everyone on Earth. 
or else he would have been delivered to Weyland Yutani and they would have had their alien sample. And then who even knows what would have happened then? Because it's not very long before we get what I think is one of the most defining scenes of sci-fi. Once they get the face hugger off of Kane, they have the acid eating through the ship sequence with that incredible bit of score with the creeping notes slowly ascending as they run through the ship. And everything about the atmosphere builds. The light becomes more intense. The acting becomes more labored. The breathing becomes heavier. They really, really gave you all of the sensory images you needed to experience a palpable sense of panic in your chest. And they talk about how this is nothing like anything they've ever known. And then shortly after that, Kane wakes up. And when Kane wakes up, everybody's just kind of fine. And they're like, ah, buddy. And he's like, I don't remember much. I'm gonna be the doctor soon. And then he goes ahead and dies. I mean, it's not soon, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. And I mean, on the subject of timey-wimey, I didn't go quite as crazy with timestamps as I normally do, but I definitely wanted to take note of a few key moments in the film. It's only about 15 minutes past that they finally arrive at LV-426. It's about half an hour into the film, and then like 35 minutes when they find the space jockey and the facehugger incident happens, and the chestburster moment doesn't come until 57 minutes into the movie. There are such enormous gaps and stretches of time, and I... I have to say, they're not exactly boring either. They really did such an amazing job of using their time to build this atmosphere of mystery and uncertainty and the fact that one of the most iconic moments of the film, indeed the thing that really gets the plot of this movie rolling, doesn't come until about halfway through. And I think that's part of the magic of Alien. Alien could almost be a totally different movie until the Alien. And what's funny about that is we actually just discovered that that is is the origin of the film, that nothing was set after they landed on the planet originally. So it makes a lot of sense that that sort of like Geigerian influence almost feels like it could lift out of the beginning of the movie. In that regard, the alien does feel like an intruder, something unnatural being injected into this ecosystem of a ship. I was going to make a joke about how that makes the alien like Rasputin in the animated Anastasia movie, but honestly, that's actually a really true and interesting point. I really like that description of the alien feeling even more like an invader into the story because of that. And that's why Ripley had to give it a ha and a haya. Well, stress is the killer. Or apparently things bursting out of your chest. Iconic scene. Iconic. Do you, as the fanboy, want to talk about that moment for a minute? One of the few things I am aware of is how little the cast and crew knew about that moment going into filming. A lot of those screams, specifically Lambert, were completely genuine because they were told something's going to happen but we're not going to tell you what it is and just continue acting, continue reacting. We'll tell you if there's a problem. I love the sequence. This was the moment I remember being like, no, this is my favorite movie of all time. I don't need to watch any other movie ever again. I know this is my favorite film. There's something so beautiful about how Ridley Scott was able to capture this atmosphere of subdued calm. He establishes that this is just a meal and they're out of the danger zone. As a matter of fact, I would have thought that whatever was going to happen, this embryo 
embryonic implantation. I didn't know exactly the plot of Alien going into it. I just knew there was like an alien and a ship and it was a survivor escape kind of thing and I could recognize the xenomorph, but I didn't recognize the life cycle process. So when all of a sudden he starts to feel ill and Kane throws himself onto the table and immediately Parker tends to him and Ash begins watching. Oh my God, Ash just watches on the sidelines. It's one of the best parts because he is watching Kane continuously throughout the scene. He is the first one to notice that something is wrong and they spend a lot of time lingering on his face and making it clear that you know there's something more going on there so when it gets to the point that the blood starts spurting and some of it gets in veronica cartwright's mouth all of the horror on her face is real evidently she needed days to calm down she was so fucked up by it. now i have to assume that some of the shots are pickup shots because they don't go out of character they don't go oh god john's dying oh god but there's there's something so visceral and and human. There's something human about the reaction. These are not soldiers. These are not prisoners. These are not science officers in a post-apocalyptic world. This is the only time the xenomorph comes for regular old people. And these people are not built to survive this. This is not what they're expecting. They just woke up from cryosleep. And that's specifically something that they went out of their way that they really wanted to do for the film is to give the characters this every man feel. You mentioned that they feel like truckers, and in my research, that's literally what they were looking for. They wanted to give the feeling of, these people are truckers in space. The only actor in the entire film who is really around the age that you would expect someone to be in a thriller is Ripley, but even she was already 29 by this point. Tom Skerritt was 46 fucking years old, which I just, I couldn't believe when I read that, because first of all, woof daddy. But hell yeah, Dallas can get it. But like, 46? God damn. And I think that might even be the beauty of what makes it so unassuming. When you go into Alien, you don't know who's going to survive. I mean, you have to assume Brett and Parker aren't going to make it out. You probably even assume Lambert and Ripley are the next to go. You identify with Dallas. Dallas is the leader. You at least identify with him as the narrator or the protagonist, something. But there's this weird sense of nothing's quite right down to the person you think, the captain, the person that this is all supposed to center around, the man. It doesn't. In that regard, Alien continues to offset expectations over and over. Once the chestburster scene occurs, I don't know what I was expecting, but I know that I had never seen a movie handle anything the way Alien handles it. The moment the chestburster scene occurs, everybody goes into survival mode. They don't have an organized plan quickly. They don't say, that's it. We're taking this bitch down. There's no empowered logic. This is about animals. This is about animals trapped in a maze. The ship, their home, is now going to be their tomb. And it's because they let this thing in them. The power of Alien, as a film, is the narrative fear of strangers, of invaders. Now, this isn't new to horror. This is a standard element of horror. Whether it's zombies warning you of mindlessness, or it's werewolves warning you about gay people, or it's rapey, rapey vampires. It's xenophobia via aliens coming to Earth. And, you know, I think the most I iconic thing about Alien that Ridley Scott and the writers of this film added the component that they added, the lightsaber of this Alien franchise, if you will, because I don't even think that it's like the face tuggers or the chest bursters. I really think it's the acid blood that makes this beast such a difficult 
bow that even if you strike it, that's not going to be enough. Its very blood is a weapon. It almost makes it indestructible when it already had that hard hide and the scorpion-like tail and its method of reproduction is so destructive. But I meant to even say before when you're talking about them following the blood down through the ship, to me, I think that is one of the most brilliant strokes to put in this film. It makes everything so much more difficult. You know, and I guess I'd never thought of it until I heard you say it back to me, but in that regard, if we're going to continue treating the Nostromo as a biome, that makes the blood the infection. Mm. It's almost as if the land has been poisoned, and now not even the ship is safe. And I think, when I think about the sequences that we're talking about, this notion of the acid blood being a defining element, almost like a lightsaber, it goes back to the heart of that statement I said, where aliens about water, this really could be a ship. This really could be fucking Jaws! You know, and in all the sci-fi franchises that have come before this, no matter how alien the aliens were, blood was blood, or at least innards were innards, but making the blood of this creature be something that is so foreign to us, it seems impossible that a creature could have acidic blood. How is it alive? But that just makes it all the more alien and impossible to us. And whether you find it impossible or not, there's no denying that it's there. You can, you know, try and pretend it's not happening, but that's not going to stop it from killing you. And talking about the blood as a form of infection going through the ship, one of the things that we're used to seeing is home court advantage. That is a humongous element of a lot of these stories. It's the invader, but this is our ship. There is no fucking inch of this ship where they are safe. They constantly don't notice the alien dangling in some chains, hiding in a circuit panel. They know that they're crawling through the ducts looking for him, and when they come across him, number one, it is very, hey guys! But, you know, (laughs) the alien is everywhere. It's hard to believe it's alien. It's hard to believe there's only one. It's clever. And the idea that even it's blood, the thing that makes it, you know, in Buffy, it's everything comes back to blood, because blood is life, and blood magic, and Avatar, blood bending. We even put the power of blood in kids shows, right? Blood is a humongous thing that propels our narratives forward because we understand that fluid makes us. When you say that even the way you kill something make it bleed, you can't do because it would kill you to get that blood on you. You've taken away one of the only ways of stopping something. Now they can't cut it open. Even if they could cut it open, they can't cut it open. I think another thing about the film that I find very interesting, and it goes back to what you were saying about subverting expectations, is the death patterns in this film. Kane, Brett, and Dallas all die within like 15 minutes, and then we go another enormously long stretch without any deaths. Ash is a little bit isolated, but Ash is also a strange case himself, almost being very alien. I feel like there's something to be said about his blood looking like milk being the antithesis of the alien while still being so completely foreign. If I'm not mistaken, milk is a base, Mm. and acid is inherently, you know, acid. And I mean, it's not milk, but like, it's supposed to look like milk. You're supposed to think about milk when you see it. So like, just so you know, we know it's not really milk, but it's milk. Yeah, I don't think that anybody's gonna pour ash into their cereal. So, one of the things that I love about bringing that up, bringing the death pattern up, is every death on the ship is a direct result of the alien, except ash. Ash's death is self-protection. In a lot 
of these stories, we see the team turn on one another and somebody gets sacrificed or someone's a dick or Ash is literally programmed. He cannot control what he is doing. He is a synthoid. The relationship Alien has with androids, synthoids, robots is a really interesting one. And part of it does need to come back to the fact that the aliens are in some way biomechanical and the aliens themselves are in part technology. David, the unfortunate protagonist of the Prometheus and Covenant films, is an android. And he... It's so interesting that he's David because that makes the engineers Goliath in some ways. And David does ultimately overtake Goliath. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Here, we have the idea that robots and androids represent a desire to further the human experience via knowledge and the humans wishing to be willfully ignorant. I almost have to ask then, is the alien an apple? Is Ash the serpent? Is the Nostromo Eden? And is humanity the people residing in the garden? Is this idea that there is something greater than us out there, a violation of the sanctity of what we understand our environment to be? There is no other alien species in Alien. Everyone looks like people. In these films, everyone is a person. Life spread from Earth. That was almost too trippy for me to follow for a sec, but as I'm like letting it marinate and unraveling it in my head, I'm like, you know what? There's certainly a lot of that there. I really get it. The forbidden fruit or the destructive knowledge here is the very existence of non-human alien life, and it turns out to be something hideous and destructive. There's a bit of Pandora's box in there then as well. I think yours is a little bit closer, but you know. At the end of the day, though, we're bringing this all back to myths of women destroying men. Pandora's box had all of those evils in it. A woman's box. Eve is the one who brought down Adam. Whereas here, Ripley as the leading female character is the one who is specifically repeatedly being like, no, stop. Don't open that door. Don't bring that on this ship, etc. In that regard, Ripley is a representative for the defender and the protection of humanity's innocence. Eve is Gaia trying to defend the Earth from this foreign entity looking to invade it. In so many ways, that makes Ripley the white blood cells to this alien infection that it's such a great metaphor for pathogen war that Weyland Yutani wants to harness this as a weapon, this unnatural biological agent that poisons life. And Ripley truly is humanity's last hope to keep this virus out of their immune system. As we continue to discuss the ways that this film subverts our expectations, I need to point out that the four people that make it to the end are the black man, the two women, and the fucking cat. <laughs> so with the black man and the two women surviving to the end, and one of the most famous horror tropes being the women die and the racial minorities die, this movie continues to show us these twists and turns that that would be impossible for other franchises to break for how many years. There's something really incredible about Parker's redemption throughout the film. He's a money-hungry dick in the beginning of the movie, but once he sees that this is a survival thing and this thing has to die, there's no more money. There is no more money. There is save everyone on this ship we can. And he's willing to put his life on the line for Lambert and Ripley over and over. He acts as one of them by this point in the film instead of sort of their opposition 
position and the things standing in the way of their success. And I think that goes both ways. I think that we see earlier on the film, Ellen treats Brett and Parker both a little classist as someone who outranks them and has an officer ranking. She's pretty condescending to them. And by the end, they are a little more close to equals. Don't worry, you'll get what's coming to you. It's an unbelievable line. And that is another amazing thing about this film. We're talking about how it's a representation of humanity and society. But another level of it, another layer, is that it represents a microcosmic element of society where there is a lower caste. Parker and Brett are treated as lesser because they're essentially mechanics. One of the reasons that Ripley gets to kind of be a bitch is because she's the warrant officer. Dallas is in charge and he kind of runs the shit like he's in charge. And frankly, he talks down to the others and tells them what's what. Sure, it's his ship. But there is definitely some sort of creating societal roles to juxtapose. And I feel that as the movie continues, it works to humanize and remind us that our roles mean nothing in the stake of survival. Now, I do believe that on every level the franchise will get away from those notions. This is the only film in the Alien franchise that, for my sake, is truly a survivor horror film. The rest are a bit different. The Aliens is an action-adventure film. Alien Cubed is an awkward experiment in filmmaking, and Alien Resurrection is a victim of a rushed production and too many cooks. But this film stands as a movie about the humanity in all of us and a desire to survive. Unless you're Lambert, and as the alien approaches you, you just stand there and wail and do nothing. I don't want to come down too hard on the actor because I'm a nice person, and I really liked when she played Jack's mom on Will and Grace. Mom! There's alien acid on the ship! But, like, ugh, I don't like that character. I think that's one of the things that held me back from liking Alien more in the past. I think I only like half the cast. I like Dallas, and I like Parker, and I like... Ripley, but I don't like Lambert. I don't particularly care for Brett or even really Kane. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I would have enjoyed it more with a different cast, but I don't know. And I know what you mean. A lot of the characters are underdeveloped until you have to care about them because they're the only thing standing between Earth and the alien. Lambert over and over tries to get out of it. And it's hard not to notice that she's like, let's just abandon the ship. Whatever. Who cares? She's certainly a character that I feel would sell out everyone else to save her own skin. And that's not something that I I ever appreciate. You know, she slaps Ripley and calls her a bitch for not letting them onto the ship, even though she was simply following protocol. But dollars to donuts, you can bet that Lambert would have done the same thing the other way around, except Lambert might never have let them in. And Lambert tries to make a last second deal with the alien. Do you want a girlfriend? I'll be your girlfriend. Is the acid thing a total non-option? Can you, like, get your blood cycled out like Keith Richards or something? Or are you just okay with hand stuff? <laughs> Any opportunity to say hand stuff. I mean, that little mouth can eat pussy like no one's business. Oh my god, I didn't even think of that. Fair enough. Finds the G-spot one way or another. So, I think that- And then eats it. <laughs> so, so alien. Alien. Okay, so who's dead? Everyone's dead, but Ripley, the alien, Mother, Jonesy. And you know, Parker's death is actually a really beautiful one. He dies trying to stand between the alien and everyone else. He knows it's futile. He knows he's not going to survive. But it's his dying breath is going to be standing up for his crewmates. I don't want to say these women. I don't want to say people he's supposed to take care of. That's not what this is about. This is humans dying to protect other humans, plain and simple. It's the survival of the human spirit. 
It's fight or flight. It's evolution to survive. And then talk to me about Ripley screaming at Mother. Let's talk about that for a minute. Naming the ship Mother mm. when this entire film is about life cycle mm-hmm. is an incredible, incredible moment. Mm. Because as she decides to destroy the ship, there's no other choice. She is telling Mother to take back the Earth. She is telling Mother, destroy our world because it's been poisoned by this foreign invader. And Mother is such a fascinating physical ship because the way that she destroys Mother, once again, involves phallic tubes going in and out of things. There is so much physical penetration imagery in this movie, and it's essential to the success of the metaphor. Once the ship begins to scream at us, it's in a motherly tone. It is literally your mother yelling at you. It sounds like the intercom voice that you would hear at the airport. It is droning and light and vaguely condescending. Absolutely. And there is something almost mocking about that. It's taunting. You're going to die. And this is because you were so nosy that you couldn't keep your nose out of other people's business. There is a dramatic hatefulness to Mother's condescension. And once Ripley realizes that she doesn't want to blow the ship, that she wants to survive, and she does that Bambi plea, Mother! Yeah, for real. She is literally screaming at her mom that her mother doesn't know what's best for her. We now see that Waylon Yutani, in control of Ash and Mother, Mother and Father, has led the children astray and invited in this monster. She's literally telling Mother, no, now this is your fault, you bitch. And she has no choice but to strike out on her own. Her community was destroyed by her mother and father's desire for profit. So she has to step away from this. She has to break free and jettison herself off. She still carries the weight of her parents' mistakes on her, literally in the form of the alien aboard her shuttle, but she blows up her life. She blows everything she ever had away for an uncertain future of mindlessness, simply to escape the mistakes of her parents who had long fallen to their own folly. And I love too that you mentioned that it was for profit. When Ash is dying, he gives this extended monologue about the simplicity and beauty of the alien creature and how it's free of morality. And I imagine that's even how Waylon Utani sees itself. Like it's some sort of thing that we should all aspire to or something. But in the blind, amoral quest for profit, all you've done is destroy everything. And when you think about profit, how can you not be remorseful of that? All you've done is destroy any chance that you have of making profit. So really, was it worth it in the end? Are you really going to try and justify this act of cruelty? It didn't work out for you either. And when you think about the progression of the story, as the movie gets more frightening, the ship gets more dark, dirty, dingy. The spotlight on all of the white doors with their simple red patterns are replaced by shadows blanketed in alarms and sirens. And this sickly yellow light everywhere. So once Ripley is on her tiny little escape pod, her world has become so much smaller. This is all she has now. And that's why she has that tiny little underwear. Yeah, I feel so bad for Sigourney Weaver in those tiny little, like, Speedo nothing shorts. I've seen gay porn where guys have sex in more clothing. So I feel like she really gave a lot for this role. And really, I think it's just the size of the panties that makes them so sexual, though. Like, they're not particularly flattering. They're not particularly sexy. She takes off her plain, formless gray t 
t-shirt and underneath she's got like an a-cut tank top so it's not even like they have her in her panties you know there's always something to be said for over sexualizing women needlessly in film but to me her stripping down is more about a vulnerability and her letting her guard down and making herself so vulnerable because she thinks that she is safe this whole fourth act of ripley thinking she's fine and stripping down and the alien being there was something that ridley scott came up with way toward the end and had to renegotiate for more money from fox to be able to film it and i think it's one of the best parts of the movie you think it's over and then it's not and it has one of my favorite jump scares maybe in movie history while i don't think the drama of the alien reaching for her is wonderful i think the surprise of it is beautiful the surprise that it happens the choreography of it is a little sloppy like the way that he reaches but if you don't know it's coming just like the characters you don't even notice that the xenomorph is there the most important part of this finale for my sake is for all of these metaphors of mother and father and their children and the violation of the sanctity of their home ripley in order to survive reverts to childhood and begins singing to herself to take on the alien she sings what is very clearly a children's song or something that at least a mother might sing to its child something along those lines to keep herself together who hasn't i one time was working outdoors in a theme park in a hurricane and i sang rent to myself till the hurricane was bad enough that they sent me home once the water was up to my knees i love that story you got like just into the start of act two right yeah i was somewhere in happy new year that is a long time for them to make you stand out in the rain but that is neither here nor there so i find so much of where ripley has to take herself to survive this so powerful the only thing that really shocked me on this watch was after you told me that one of the things they wanted to do was do jaws in space no for real she literally fucking shoots it with a harpoon and i do want to mention the way the woman is finally able to fend off the alien is through a phallic weapon Uh, it's it's one of those things where i'm sort of like it's there i'm not outraged but it's certainly there and yeah the jaws thing i thought that was a really interesting point of comparison that the endings of these two films are so similar in that regard then i also am always stopped by the sequence where she's roasting the xenomorph with the exhaust jets from the ship and it's clearly water like it's clearly water and light and that's how they're trying to get the effect of the fire but it's one of those things where you did the best you could and i really applaud that effort like the things they had to come up with back when there weren't computers it's one of those things like when you have to explain the internet used to be tough we didn't all have it and they're like what like how far we've come in terms of technology in 40 years i do wonder what a movie like alien would look like today would they have the same atmosphere when they have better technology or was the atmospheric nature of alien solely because of the limitations of technology at the time it's it's hard to say all said and done though the way it knits together creates such a compelling argument for so much of what ridley scott would later include in the franchise as well as a number of other creators that would touch it except originally this film was going to have an ending that would have completely precluded any of the things that come after would you like to elaborate on that briefly yeah so the original ending was at one point the alien was gonna like behead ripley i'm like 
like hold her head and talk in her voice. It would have been the only time the alien made any noise other than vaguely letting the air out of a tire, and I'm not sure that I would have liked that ending. I genuinely feel if Alien had a weird fucking ending like that, it would not be the legend it is today. I don't even think that Ripley necessarily needed to survive the film. I I mean, I do, but if Ripley had died, it would be one thing, but I think the described scene of the alien holding her head and speaking in her voice and the alien being the one to send that message and the implication that the alien's coming for you, like, I think that really would have pushed the film over the edge into camp, especially in the era when people were still figuring out how to properly do sci-fi franchises that you take seriously. You know, it's like sci-fi back then was like comic book movies are now. It took forever for people to start taking them seriously. And I think that's certainly something that would have diminished all 116 minutes that came before it. And not just diminished, but so completely invalidated everything we just said about this being a foreign body. I mean, one of the things that a virus does is it reprograms existing cells to behave as the virus, not the other way around. The virus doesn't just suddenly become a different kind of cell. The other cells become viruses. So if in the end the alien could speak in Ripley's voice, we would lose so much of the power of the alien inserting itself into our world. And I just can't even imagine how James Cameron saw this movie and came up with aliens, but I'm really excited to talk about it and take a look at some behind the scenes. Aliens is a completely different creature than alien on every level. So it's sort of the end of this phrase of the alien songbook. And here's a bit of a teaser for the BTS for aliens. What's all the more interesting about James Cameron seeing alien and being inspired for aliens is that he was actually writing three screenplays simultaneously, including aliens. But I will reveal what the other two are next time. I'm like on the very edge of my Sulaco over that. So Kevo, until we journey back into space and we find out everything we need to know from Helen Hunt's husband, where can everybody find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevorelly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me on the Facebook page for this lovely show by searching Husbands Talking More or Less on Facebook. And if you're really desperate for more Kevo, you can find all of my super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero work with Nico and our co-workers Tori and Taryn over at KidRideComics.com. And Nico, how can the lovely folks at home find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like X's for Podcast, where along with Jonah and Dylan, we talk about the X-Men comic book franchise. We have multiple feeds running, so whether you want to check out the classic X-Men in order from their giant size rebirth, you want to follow along with Jonathan Hickman's amazing Dawn of X, or you want to check out some Thor along with my co-host Kyle, we have something for everybody. Not to mention I'm also on Now and Again, the wonderful music podcast with my childhood best friend Chris, and I write some themes for this network, so you can check out some of my work in some of the other shows, like on Too Fast, Too Furious. I think it might be Too Fast, Too Furious forever, five bad boys with the power to rock you, six golden rings. So fast, so furious, all the time, really quick and really angry. Like, just like, fast, fast, angry butts! So, you can also check me out on Instagram, at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, Kevo shook his head dismissively at that joke. No, I'm thinking about changing my Twitter name to Fast Angry Butts. So it was derision at yourself for having not come up with it before. If you like. Guys, I can't wait to go back to space with you guys. Until next time, nobody can hear you sign off this podcast. Bye. Well, I guess everybody can hear you sign off this podcast. Yeah, because fuck science. Fuck science! Science in a vacuum! Wait, was that fuck science in a vacuum or fuck science and a vacuum? I'm speechless. We'll answer that question next time.